BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In 1652, the first coffee house opened in London. Not so much a house as a shed, selling to passers-by. The taste, it's thought, was unspeakable. But people liked the effect it had, both on them and on all those around them in these new coffee houses. They were more talkative, brighter, awake for longer and sharing news and ideas. It changed society. And coffee growing spread across the world's colonies too, to meet European and American demand, changing lives from Java to Brazil, calling for more and more slaves to tend the crop. With me to discuss the history of coffee are Jonathan Morris, Professor in Modern History at the University of Hertfordshire, Markman Ellis, Professor of 18th Century Studies at Queen Mary University of London, and Judith Hawley, Professor of 18th Century Literature at Royal Holloway, University of London. Judith, how did coffee become a drink, according to legend first? Well, first of all, it wasn't a drink, but a kind of snack. Uh, there's a very strange story that emerged in the, in probably the 17th century about how uh, there was a goat herder who is sometimes described as a goat herder, sometimes as a camel herder in, the, uh, in Ethiopia or possibly Egypt who um, observed that his goats, once they'd eaten of the berries of this particular bush, would become very, very frisky and uncontrollable. And so this herder decided that he would try them too um, and he started to dance around and to frisk and uh, was, was came, somebody came upon him, somebody who's described sometimes as a monk, sometimes as an imam, and noticed the effect that eating these beans was having on these people. And the religious man tried them out himself and he found it amazing that they kept him awake and he's able to pray all night. So the first time coffee was consumed, it was as um, the fresh berry or cherry of the bush. And then how did it spread? Let's let's take the legend for granted and, and rest on it because it's as good an explanation good as we're going to get, yes, yeah, isn't it? Yes. So, right. Yes. So it's possible that uh, religious people, whether Christian but almost certainly um, uh, Muslim, started to make a kind of infusion uh, of the whole cherry with the red husk as well. Um, they didn't start roasting it for some time afterwards, but they would have made it as an infusion. Or they also sometimes consumed it as a sort of ground into a, a paste and mixed with fat, a, a butter or, or oil, rather like those high-protein snacks that people drink nowadays. And it's sort of partly medicinal, but also it's very much associated with prayer, that it allowed you to stay alert during the long nights of prayer. And this was particularly important for the Sufis, the, um, the very mystic strand of Islam. And a lot of Sufis were working during the day. They weren't uh, sort of full-time uh, holy men. And then they would, would pray during the evening. They'd enter their devotions at night and they use this. So coffee is, is what made the dervishes whirl. So by what time and with what effect had coffee spread into the Ottoman Empire? It probably spread there. <coughs> it's, it's sort of hard to say. There, there are... Recently, some coffee beans were found in the Horn of Africa in what's now the United Arab Emirates, and they were probably they probably came from Yemen, and that might have been as early as the 12th century. But trade in coffee was uh, conducted across the Red Sea, and uh, the, the port of Mocha, which is what gives us uh, one of the names for coffee, was a vital trade route. And then it spread to... Um, further through into what was known as the Levant, round about um, 
let's say, probably the 16th century or possibly even earlier. And it's just for general trading, people heard of it and wanted it. But it, it's, it's when, a, Yes, it's a mixture of merchants. Yeah. Um, the, the ports were very, very important, but also people on the pilgrimage to Mecca. It was spreading along prayer routes as well as trading routes. Can you give us some idea when this trade got a bit of traction? It seems to develop rather slowly. It did. I think it was it was a niche drink and there were um, specialised places where it was consumed. So it wasn't in every household. So it wasn't a sort of a mass product. So that's, that slowed down the spread of it. But you've talked about the Yemen and move, moving yeah, up. In the, yeah. About, about when? Which century? Probably the, um, I think we, sh- we need to say about the 16th century it reached Constantinople. And from there, maybe in periods of about 50 years at a time, it moved its way around the Mediterranean and eventually across continental Europe. Did the Ottoman Empire take it as its as its drink quite soon, or did that again take a bit of time? Um, that took a bit of a bit of time, but it was very much a part of um, habits of hospitality in the Ottoman Empire. So it's not just um, a religious drink by then. So coffee houses developed in the Ottoman Empire, and they were places for men to gather, to conduct conversation, to relax. As it's sort of a, often a place where you'd go in the afternoon to relax from stresses and strains, but also to meet people. So there's quite a ritual of buying coffee, making and serving coffee to people that was, was part of its spread and consumption. So not just the, the beverage or the commodity, but the, the way of consuming and sharing it. Jonathan Morris, how did coffee start to spread west from the Ottoman Empire? Well, it was often merchants themselves who spread it west. They were obviously um, communicating into the rest of Europe. Uh, The first record that we really have of coffee in uh, Western Europe is in Venice. And we know this because we have the death of an Ottoman merchant in 1575 in Venice. And uh, as part of the investigation, they uh, made a listing of all of his effects and this included sort of coffee making paraphernalia uh, but we know more generally I suppose that um, those that who were called Armenians that's to say the Christians who were living within the Ottoman Empire frequently became emigres into Western Europe and we tend to find that those are the people who established the first sort of coffee houses the first coffee routes into European society. How important was it that coffee was non-alcoholic? Uh, It was very important, although, of course, even more important back in the Ottoman Empire and um, Arabia. It was important because until that point, really, in terms of sociable drinking, that would all have to be conducted over some form of alcohol. So once there was a drink that was actually doing the wakeful as opposed to the sleeping, that obviously enabled it to be used in settings such as work practices, such as places where people were negotiating, trading and so forth. And that becomes the basis, really, of uh, the early coffee houses. And how did it begin to spread west from the Ottoman Empire? So there's a, an interesting sort of... Um, disconnect if you like so we know that coffee as we said had spreads first into italy and into probably into those eastern uh, european lands but it's used very much as a medicine uh, a medicinal thing and it's sort of confined to being I mean, what was it supposed to cure uh pretty much anything that you wanted it to cure would be <laughs> would be the answer um so gout would be one thing for example but there would be lots of uh, sort of promises that this would cure things was there really any, any track record, any record kept of its effect? Um, no record that I think could be described as anything other than marketing. 
Um, so they, the way that it would be used would be by Apocrates prescribing it. Uh, and that creates the odd situation that, in fact, the first sort of social coffee house, uh, as you alluded to, sort of opens in, in England, which is actually quite late in terms of seeing the first coffee. So there's that kind of disconnect for that reason. You use the term marketing. How was it marketed in the West? So it flows out of the Ottoman Empire, and they can say, well, this keeps you awake, alcohol will send you to sleep, we're against alcohol anyway, so take this and you'll be able to pray more, and that'll be good for us and good for you, and so on. Uh, what did the, how did they sell it when it moved across uh, uh, into Europe? Well, there, I mean, there are most famously a sort of a handbill that, that comes out, which is produced, we think, by Rosé's own uh, people, in which it refers to being able to cure wind, being able to cure gout, being able to remove stones and so forth. So it is advertised as having all these properties. Uh, the first that handbill is, in fact, actually made available to other people so within the context of marketing within uh, England and London people, each coffee house is writing out the same handbill but substituting in their own name for all the things that they can deliver through it. How similar have we any idea how similar it was to the coffee we drink today? Dissimilar, we hope um, we would imagine that that coffee would be, well first of all it would be made by effectively a sort of a um what you might call a, a lesser version of what we now think of as Turkish coffee. So that it would be made by boiling, it would be made by direct boiling of the grounds with the powder. The powder itself would almost certainly, having come from um, the Java or from Mocha, would be stale, extremely stale. And shipping coffee at that time would have been done, the coffee would have been exposed, so the coffee would have taken on quite a lot of other characteristics. Than Do we have any evidence of how, what it tasted like? Well, we have people describing how they felt about it. Most of what they describe is really about the effect that they believe that it has on them. So it is this kind of reviving effect. It is the sort of the effect of keeping them up and so forth. Uh, there are other people who are, are fairly uh, unhappy about it. But then we have the great innovation, of course, which is when milk is added to coffee. Ah, oh, that's a marker, isn't it? Yeah, so let's move on uh, to Mark Manalis. How did it move from being an exotic drink to something sold to the public? Coffee, by the mid-17th century, becomes more widely available in um, northern Europe, mainly through traders. So in Britain, the, it was the Levant Company that traded, especially with Turkey and the Ottoman Empire. And you know, by the 1630s, there are uh, individuals associated with the Levant Company who, who have accessed the coffee in, in, in Britain and are drinking it. One of them is William Harvey, whose brothers were both the describer of circulation of the blood. His brothers were both Levant merchants, and he records drinking coffee and, and its effect on him. And we're moving towards the first coffee house. Yes, so the first coffee house opens in, in, in London in probably 1652. It was opened by a, uh, a servant of a uh, Levant merchant called Daniel Edwards. And the, the servant was called Pascal Rosé. And from his name, that strongly suggests he was a, a Greek Christian. He came from Ragusa, um, Dubrovnik. And um, he had uh, expertise in making coffee and had been trained in that way in uh, Smyrna, which is where Daniel Edwards um, traded uh, for his family company. And when Daniel Edwards came back to London, uh, he got sick of entertaining all his friends in his house to coffee in the morning, and so set up his servant, Pasqua Rosé, in, as you said, a shed, basically, in the churchyard of St Michael's Cornhill 
uh, right by the Royal Exchange, um, where all the merchants in London gathered every day. And uh, quite quickly, a, a large concourse of people, as they say, gathered every morning at uh, Rosé's shed. And within a year or two, he had made enough money to move across the alley into a proper building. Um, he'd uh, taken on a partner, and um, Pascal Rosé's the coffee house Pascal Rosé's head became the first most well-known coffee house in London. Um, when the city authorities did a, did, a, did a census of coffee houses only 10 years later, just in the city of London alone there were 83 coffee houses. So it uh, points to the extremely rapid um, uh, expansion of the number of coffee houses um, What's your theory as to why it was so extreme? I mean, 10 to 83 is a heck of a jump, isn't it? It is, it is, and in, in, in such a short time. Well, the, the conditions were good. Uh, it was in the middle of um, you know, the Republican uh, uh, government, and they were hostile to, being a Puritan government, hostile to excessive alcohol drinking and tried to uh, license the number of uh, taverns and public houses that were in the city. And coffee was not intoxicating, so... Um, it, it 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 found uh, uh, you know, easy um, acceptance from from the authorities. It's also an extremely addictive drug. So once you're used to drinking it for whatever reason, um, you want to keep drinking it. And its association with the trading practices of the Levant merchants meant that if you wanted to get on with the Levant company, you needed to drink coffee, and then coffee takes you over, and you have to keep drinking coffee. <laughs> Thank you, Judith Hawley. Um, how did the those coffee those sheds those coffee houses uh, develop into the uh, uh, the coffee houses that we know about, which then developed into clubs? What was the big development? Was that what was that great rush of development? Was that just to do with businessmen wanting to do business with businessmen and scholars with scholars and so on? What was going on? Yeah. So Markman's described the move of Pascal Rosé from a, a shed, which would have been like one of the German Christmas market type sheds, into uh, into premises. And one of the big appeals of the premise was that it, uh, the coffee house became a place where you go and meet people and talk. You'd go and meet and talk to strangers. And when uh, Markman mentioned the eighty three coffee houses that were there within a decade they're usually located in particular areas of the city which already had an association say uh, with printers or with lawyers or with merchants of of a particular type or near Gresham College so people from those establishments could step out of their their places of work and go to a place where they could they could meet each other and talk the why do do they sideline taverns um Taverns had uh, a, a, the, it, taverns had a mixture of associations. They were certainly more upper class than an alehouse, but they were um, places of alcohol consumption. Um, they were mixed. You know, women could go into taverns. Coffee houses were pretty much exclusively uh, male establishments, apart from the women who might own them or serve the coffee there. So I think there was a desire for men to talk business, whether their business was law or or trade or the new science they wanted to talk business with their fellow businessmen and coffee houses provided a number of things that taverns didn't do and i think this is crucial there there, there are two aspects to this one is the layout of the coffee house there's almost always uh, a long table in the middle of the coffee house and you'd go in and you'd pay a penny for your cup of coffee and you'd take whatever seat was available so you'd sit and talk to whoever was there so this model of sociability 
And the other did cruci- that come from the Ottomans? Yes, I think that did. Except the Ottomans often had you. Would t- you could take people to a, a private corner or, or a, a sort of a, a bench, an elevated bench. But this uh, sort of come all who can and you you mingle and meet. Um, made it a discursive space. And the other thing was that they provided newspapers, pamphlets, printed material, reading material of all kinds. So people would go in in order to get the latest news in terms of the gossip and conversation. Um, uh, John Arbuthnot wrote a wonderful poem called The Quidnunks, the what now? You come and say, what's up, what's up, what's what's happening in the news? Um, or you might get the latest poem if you went into Wills or Buttons, where the where the wits met. Or you'd get to hear um, what was happening in Parliament if you went to the coffee houses in St James. So it's that mixture of news, reading, discussion, sharing of ideas, which I think is absolutely crucial to the rapid spread of the coffee house during a period of the rapid rise of knowledge. We're talking about beginnings in the second half of the 17th century. Second half of the 17th century and, and into the early 18th. With, because they got too lively and they were spreading ideas, heaven forbid, in this country. And he um, and it was threatened with closure. They were threatened with closure. Yes, in 1676, Charles II tried to close them down because one of the, the chief ideas which was being discussed was, was, was the king, you know, and what, what was the fate of, of the Stuart succession. Jonathan Morris... Um, Let's bring in how it's developing as a trade. Uh, the Dutch East India Company, very powerful, takes uh, takes a, takes its part in this. Amsterdam becomes one of the great centres of the coffee trade. Can you develop that? Yeah, sure. Um, basically, obviously, up until about the 1700s, all of the coffee that's coming onto the market comes from Mocha, from that sort of original cultivation which is going on in Yemen. So the Dutch East India Company is seeing an expansion in demand and at the same time in the early 1700s the Ottoman Empire is increasing the restrictions upon the trade uh, the governor of uh, one of the governors of Dutch East India Is that because India, they wanted to make more money or because they wanted to control it for other reasons? I think primarily it's because of making money um, but the what happens therefore is I think that, that there are difficult relations with those East India companies, if you like, and the Ottoman authorities. And as a result, uh, one of the governors of the Dutch East India Company, a man called Nicholas de Witsen, decides to try and plant coffee in one of the colonies, uh, in this case Java. Uh, He takes his coffee from actually Malabar in India, where we believe that that coffee had probably got, uh, by legend, by somebody making the pilgrimage, probably in reality by merchants, Indian merchants, trying to set up somewhere else to grow coffee. Anyway, he takes that coffee, he plants it in Java. It's a slow process, but by around 1711, they are shipping coffee back into Amsterdam. Amsterdam develops its own coffee exchange, and by the end of the 1720s, about 90% of the coffee that is going through um, the Amsterdam Exchange is now from Java rather than from Mocha. Mark Manellis, um, how was at that time uh, coffee changing in the way we did business? For instance, Judith pointed it out uh, or alluded to the fact that it changed the, the 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 interplay of ideas. It was outside the university system. The university system was mainly classics. You went into the law <coughs> uh, or you went into the church, uh, and the the great practical scientific development of our country came from dissenters or people outside the universities and the, 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 these clubs, these coffee houses were part of that. Yeah, so coffee houses offered an alternative place for meeting, for sociability and it was particularly uh, 
appropriate for businessmen because unlike a tavern, uh, you didn't become intoxicated by, by being there for a long time. Which is not to say that taverns didn't um, continue to be to be have an important social role, but during the daytime, for example, you might find more more people moving from the the, the Royal Exchange to a coffee house than to a tavern, and because of that, I mean, around all the around a place like the Royal Exchange, the centre of trade in London, um, there were there were you know, numerous coffee houses, um, you know, one on every corner kind of idea, and some of them began to attract particular kinds of businessmen. Sometimes they were even named after the kind of business that they wanted to attract. So the Virginia Coffee House, for example, traded with um, merchants who traded with Virginia might assemble there, or the Baltic Coffee House for Eastland Company merchants who traded with Russia and the Baltic. Um, and then other ones, like Jonathan and Garraway's, uh, seemed to attract stockbrokers and stock jobbers. And um, one, uh, Edward Lloyd, who set up a coffee house in the 1690s, um, specialised in marine insurance. And once you start getting a, a, a group of businessmen coming together, they, uh, there's, an, there's a kind of a group advantage. So they, they are gathering information from each other. They're sort of crowdsourcing through gossip and, and information, stuff which actually has commercial value. So um, Lloyd started printing a, a, a list of shipping movements, for example, um, which becomes Lloyd's List, which uh, still exists today. Uh, and if you, were, if you got access to Lloyd's List first thing in the morning, and it was read out in Lloyd's in the morning, you, you had a couple of hours fresh information before the information was released to the rest of the world. So coming back to the coffee house time after time gave you a commercial advantage. So quite quickly, um, you know, going to the right coffee house for that kind of business meant that you, um, you had a commercial advantage. And then by the end of the 18th century, some of these places are also realising that that information is valuable and that by excluding just anyone who walks in off the street, they could make the information even more uh, valuable. So the Jonathan's, uh, the stock brokers who met at Jonathan's Coffee House reformed themselves into a, a new Jonathan's, which becomes known as the Stock Exchange in the 1760s, and uh, Lloyd's becomes closed to uh, you know, day uh, day trippers, as it were, um, in, in the 1770s, because they realised that, that uh, only by a subscription um, and allowing only the members in, into the coffee room, well, they, they can then make uh, full use of the commercial information that they're gathering. Judith, you were, you were keen to stress the variety and number of coffee houses, and we've had one or two there. Is, was there a general sense in which the drinking of coffee in these coffee houses changed what was being said and written, changed, changed the game in in London and elsewhere? It wasn't just in London. Yes, I think it was. I mean, coffee houses did develop in the major ports and, and towns around Britain, Norwich, Bristol, York, and so forth. Um, I think this this idea that that reading and writing went on in coffee houses is, is important, that people went there in order to read things and they also started writing things in and about the coffee houses. Jonathan's talked about some of the handbills. So some of the stuff that was written about the coffee houses in the early days uh, was satire on it or promotion of the coffee house. There's a, a famous pamphlet in which the, the women were inveiging against the men for attending coffee houses and becoming feminised. They gossiped like women and then when they came home they were... <coughs> 
<clears throat> like shot and heron and no good for anything. They're impotent. They're impotent, yes. Coffee houses made them impotent. Coffee houses made men impotent. But they also sharpened men's wits. So there were coffee houses associated with particular wits, like uh, the great dramatist and poet John Dryden held court in, um, in Will's Coffee House in Covent Garden. And then Richard Steele and Joseph Addison, who kind of invented a genre which... Uh, kind of, which puts the coffee house on paper. They invented a thing called periodical literature, so the thrice weekly or um, regular, uh, not quite newspaper, but journal, which has an essay uh, about an important issue or raises the standard of debate, that it, it makes conversation better informed, so we're talking more about civil. We're talking about politeness. Yeah. And we're talking about the spectator. We're talking about the tattler and the spectator, both of which in their first issues, so the tattler in 1709 and the spectator in 1711, the, f the very first issues of them made the link between the coffee house and the periodical explicit. That, they're, that these, the personae of the tattler and the spectator were gathering news from the coffee houses. And was there, this was a, this was the buzz, we're sticking in London at the moment, there's lots more to say about other countries, but to stay here, this was the news of the town. This is where you got your news, this is where things developed uh, in a way they had, not <coughs> they had not developed before? They really hadn't developed in this way before because uh, political news was largely concentrated and distributed in a kind of need-to-know basis. So it was people, cons and one of the reasons why Charles II wanted to shut down the coffee houses is because people who weren't courtiers and politicians were discussing politics. How dare they uh, enter into political debate and think that they could have something to say about the future of the country? Jonathan Morris, um, what's, what's happening with the production of coffee and how is it produced and how much labour is involved? And what do you have to say about that? Right. Well, I think what we need to, to think about is that at this point, as coffee spreads into more general use in Europe, so virtually all of those imperial countries start creating colonies or start planting into their colonies coffee and creating plantations to cultivate it. Probably the largest uh, coffee suppliers are the French. The French take coffee to the Caribbean, they take it to Martinique, but most of all they plant in what is then called Saint-Domingue, uh, what we now refer to as Haiti. By the 1760s, 1770s, that has well over half of the world's coffee is being produced there. All of that production is carried out uh, using slave production. Is that OK, or is there a ripple beginning to turn into a flood that that's not OK? So what happens particularly in San Domingue is that with the outbreak of the... With, as it were, the development of Enlightenment ideas and the outbreak of the French Revolution... Uh, in Paris itself, that those ideas also penetrate into Saint-Domingue. And they begin to agitate for their rights. This ultimately coincides in the creation of what becomes the Haitian Revolution, in which both, as it were, Jean de Colleur, pushing for the emancipation of slaves, and the slaves themselves become involved. That ultimately leads to, as we know, the creation of the First Black Republic, in Haiti, uh, which unfortunately also leads to pretty much the destruction of the coffee uh, system in Haiti. So about a thousand plantations are destroyed. Interesting, quite a few of the leaders of the revolution, not least uh, Toussaint Louverture himself, were in some way coffee producers. So we have this sort of very confused situation, but the end of it 
what we end up with is the destruction of first the coffee industry in Haiti and then once the Haitian Republic is established its inability to re-enter into the trade because of the refusal of many of the rest of the world to do business with the Black Republic. Mark Manellis, what criticisms were there of the new coffee culture, both the slavery side and the idea of these rampaging associations in London, that sort of thing? So coffee had always had its detractors from when it, when it first arrived, this strange, black, hot, bitter drink. So it was an obvious sort of subject for satirical attacks and, and criticism. It had uh, critics of its physiological effects as well that we've been hearing about. I mean, medically, people accused it of being both an intoxicant and an aphrodisiac, but also causing impotence and obstructing the bowels and things like that. And then people also uh, accused it of wasting people's time, who hanging around in coffee houses, talking to each other, keeping talking because that's the effect that coffee has long into the night um, when they should have been, people should have been working. So apprentices and, and uh, law students are particularly accused of spending far too much time in the coffee house. People also accuse it of being an exotic luxury, uh, you know, uh, wasting the, the nation's um, hard currency uh, for a, a product which um, has no nutritional value. Um, and uh, so it, it, this sort of um, connection between uh, physiological um, uh, fear of the effects that coffee was having on on British masculinity, as it were, on British men, um, and and the social effects that coffee having is, it becomes a sort of vector for for hostility to coffee and to coffee houses. Judith, Judith Holly, the coffee drinking, coffee trade declined in the nineteenth century. How is that? A number of reasons, I think. Cultural, commercial, geographical uh, changes happened uh, over the course of about 50 years. In the middle of the um, 18th century, the royal family took to tea drinking and coffee was no longer quite such the, the buzzy drink. Tea became more refined. Tea was also something that you could drink at home, so it could be more widespread. Coffee was something you drank in a coffee house. All men, tea, could, you, you could drink at home. The lady at the house could preside over the tea table. Also, the, because of the Dutch East India Com Company doing so well with uh, coffee trade, the British East India Company, I think, put more of its effort into tea drinking. So there's a big commercial pressure to keep producing tea and making tea more saleable. And Markman's also described how the coffee houses became kind of clubs and closed shops some of them commercially shut themselves off to, to new members. Some of the more fashionable ones around St James's, like White's, became members-only clubs. They became elite institution uh, and became associated with gambling. Uh, also, when uh, city merchants started to move out of the City of London and didn't live there anymore, um, these premises couldn't really keep going because if, if all the merchants were living above the shop, they could go to the coffee house several times a day. And keep, Peeps describes going to the coffee house three or four times a day. But once you're no longer living in the city... It became more of a working-class drink in the 19th century. So there were coffee shacks and carts, like the sort of little street carts that you get still in London, you get all over New York, that is a cheap, quick drink to perk you up. Um, and the temperance movement sponsored coffee taverns to try to wean working men off um, going to the pub for lunch. So it, it moved. It, it, it declined seriously and has never fully recovered, even in the, in the current coffee boom. Jonathan Morris... Um how did it become so very? How did coffee become so very popular in America? 
well, America is really the first mass market for coffee. And um, what we see is obviously a gradual increase over the 19th century, but we see a big growth immediately after the Civil War. And that's probably because in terms of the armies of the Civil War, the um, Confederate Army consumed a large amount of coffee. Coffee obviously has psychoactive properties, which we've discussed. That was seen as a good thing by the generals to keep their soldiers alert. Their soldiers became very keen on coffee and were drinking coffee, as they put it, between meals, with meals, after meals, on every route march we have to have coffee before we start and so forth. So the coffee ration that was actually given to each soldier probably would have supported about making 10 cups of coffee a day. Obviously, once those people are demobilised, that's quite a latent demand for coffee. Uh, and that they're also then demobilised into the society at the time of the great expansion of, of uh, moving out westwards, moving out on the ranches, the cowboys, etc. And that creates a further demand for coffee to support that. And we see that being then um, addressed through technological uh, discoveries, most of all through the creation of an industrial coffee roasting plant and industrial coffee roasting as a business. So by 1873, we have the first branded coffee, it's called Arioza, uh, very much marketed at people making that restward move, and marketed by a company called Arbuckles in um, Philadelphia. And from there, that we see by 1913, that basically about 85% of American consumption is of branded coffee. So there has been the creation of this market for an industrial commodity. Thank you. Um, Markman Ellis, um, let's turn to Brazil, which at one stage was the biggest producer. Is it still? Anyway, the biggest producer of coffee in the world, 70%, I think, of the world's coffee produced in Brazil, 80% of the 70% went to America. Can you tell us how that happened? Yeah, so um, so the demand, which um, Jonathan's just been describing, in, that grows in America in the 19th century, had to come from somewhere, and it wasn't America. Uh, and Brazil grows uh, in importance in the coffee trade. So coffee had been first been taken to Brazil in 1727, uh, in the beginning of the 18th century, but it's not really till the beginning of the 19th century that the plantations really take off. In Brazil, they're particularly on the Atlantic seaboard around uh, Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. Um, uh, they expand in size. Coffee plantations in Brazil are massive compared to other places. Uh, the labour that's used on them is slave labour, far later than anywhere else. Brazil was... The from where? From inside Brazil? Or? Uh, no, again, from Africa, imported from Africa. And the, the slave trade wasn't uh, abolished in uh, Brazil until 1850, and the slavery itself wasn't abolished until 1888, which is a long time after anywhere else. Um, so the, these are big, industrialised, um, slave-driven uh, coffee plantations. Um, in a fertile country... Um, Using forms of quite um, destructive agriculture, which used um, which you know, deforested, it is said deforested the, the Atlantic seaboard of, of Brazil, um, and produced large quantities of coffee relatively cheaply. Um, uh, the, so the demand in America is growing, and in Europe, and Brazil was able to supply, you know, uh, cheap but also relatively high quality coffee in huge quantities. So that by the from the period from 1870 through to 1950, Brazil supplied more than 50 percent. Some years is up to 70 percent of the world's global supply of coffee, and it's still um, by far the largest producer. Um, I think about uh, you know somewhere between a third and a half of the global production um, is is Brazil. 
Given the slaves have gone, how does it produce it now? Um, so after slavery was abolished um, and the, the, the people who had previously been slaves were unwilling to work on the, on the plantations, as you can imagine, um, they, they tried indentured labour, especially from um, from southern Europe and from Japan, which accounts for the large, uh, or partly accounts for the large populations of uh, Japanese and uh, Italian uh, immigrants in in um, Brazil, and they mechanised more of the more of the production so that it didn't require as much labour. When slave labour is not available, then the next step is steam-driven. How, how big was this trade? I mean, compared with other trades that were going on, cotton and all the rest of it, was, was this a big deal? Well, in terms of Brazil, it's the biggest deal, without a doubt. So for Brazil, that's the number one agricultural commodity at that time. So oh. the Brazilian economy is based on that right up until really the middle of the 20th century. Judith, who's all how, do we know that the taste of coffee, the making of coffee, has changed? Uh, has it changed? How radically has it changed? Are I we think, drinking the yeah. same stuff? They I, th- I think we're drinking very different stuff. Mark Wynne actually has a very good phrase for this. I think he calls it the, the ugo of Sir Reverence. Mm. Uh, as the, uh, the, it has the goo, the taste, the ugo of Sir Reverence, which means excrements. Um, the, the introduction of milk, the uh, the the gradual... Uh, control of the roasting process so you could roast coffee beans to uh, uh, at different temperatures and in a more more stable way the removal of, of impurities that all improved coffee but at the same time some much worse coffee was coming on the market so in the late 19th century there was a terrible disease of the coffee plant that wiped out uh, over the course of about 30 years, most of the coffee plantations in the West Indies, they, uh, the, the Dutch managed to source uh, a different type of co- coffee called Robusta in the Congo. And Robusta is the coffee which now is, is produced, uh, a, a lot of it is produced in Brazil, but also in Vietnam. And, it, and it's, a, it's a cheaper, nastier, burnt rubber sort of taste. So therefore we're talking about addiction if people are going to keep swallowing this, is that right? Well, it means that so the caffeine theory of 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 coffee's victory over our taste buds would suggest that it is it's the addictiveness which which keeps us drinking. But I mean, I think that the, you know coffee has a complicated um, array of effects, and that the idea that it's a sort of social drug, a, a thinking drug, is also really important in the way we uh, we approach coffee. Do so, I have evidence for that? <laughs> um, that that's a thinking drug. Uh, no. Only, only my own experience. I mean, there's propaganda for it, but oh, well, you've got your own experience. Right? <laughs> oh, and that's useful. What does it do to you? <laughs> well, I, I mean, the morning doesn't work until I until I've had my coffee. And same, same for Voltaire. Same for Balzac. Voltaire you know, wrote the Enlightenment on forty cups of coffee a day. Balzac kind of invented uh, France in a way. He invented Paris in his amazing novels by drinking coffee all night. Well, that's if it's good enough for Voltaire. <laughs> what are you saying? Good enough for Balzac? Well, it's certainly good enough for Balzac. That was probably, well, 50 cups of coffee a day strikes me as a little bit excessive. But I, I would say coffee, it's addictive, but it's that addiction is quite a mild addiction. And in fact, coffee is very much like alcohol, really. We process, we each process our coffee in different ways. It has a half-life in our body. We can probably take a certain amount of coffee without becoming addicted to craving the next couple of coffee. To go around the table... How, how, in your view, has coffee changed society? It's a small question to ask you all, starting with you. <laughs> um, well, I think coffee's, coffee, I think, place p- puts people in a, 
in a place where they can be more sociable, be together more often, um, in a way which is you know reflective and philosophical and maybe sociable and discursive. So it adds to the way in which we uh, we suffer each other when we live closely together in cities. Thank you. That was Mark Amalis. I didn't introduce him at the beginning of my question. Now, Judith. I think if we look at the way uh, coffee consumption is going today, it seems to me to set out two quite radical alternatives for the world. One is the world of corporate coffee, the coffee chains existing on um, a low-wage economy. So you have that kind of mass coffee market on the one hand. On the other hand, you have these micro-lot estates, fair trade coffee, the sort of um, hipster coffee, which is a, a, as, as, as varied and as interesting as, uh, as fine wines and is made in an artisanal way and designed to be consumed by a kind of small self-selecting, perhaps. <laughs> but it's a, it's a very different model of how to live. And Jonathan? Well, I, I'm going to start by disagreeing a little bit because the, the corporate chains that, that you're referring to actually created that market for the specialty coffee. And in fact, I think the big division we have to think about is really the division between coffee being drunk as coffee in the coffee shop and the kind of mass coffee that we have as coffee products, most of which is drunk in the home or used in other ways in the home. And that actually reflects back into the coffee market because if I was going to make a difference, it would be between the kind of mechanised, large-scale farming that Markman's been talking about in Brazil and the vast majority of coffee in the world, which is grown by smallholders across Africa and Asia, where they have very small amounts of land and are growing as a subsistence crop. And the problem that we have, and if you like, the, the problem coming out of history is that because labour has always been historically very lowly compensated in the coffee industry, the price that goes back and gets back to those smallholders is very, very low and consequently very frequently does not actually reflect the labour that they put in to the point that they may actually, if this is priced out correctly, be losing money by growing coffee for us to consume. Well, that's a rather bleak ending, but uh, none the worse for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jonathan, Jonathan Morris, uh, Markman Ellis and Judith Hawley. Next week, stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, as we'll be di- discussing W.H. Auden and his poetry from the dark days of the 1930s. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I I came across two very interesting facts about uh, coffee recently. Um, When Jonathan was talking about the importance of coffee to uh, American soldiers, um, I came across a a fact which which sort of tallies with that, that as the Swiss government stockpiles essential foodstocks in case of nuclear wars, and I I presume and rather hope that other governments do too, and they have a huge stockpile of tonnes and tonnes of coffee and they thought this isn't really an essential, you know, and it's taking up room that could be taken up with lithium-ion batteries or whatever they thought was more essential, sardines or soya or whatever. Um, But the the Swiss people rose up and said, no, we must... uh, Coffee is an essential. We've got to keep it. Really? The other thing I came across recently, which which surprised me a lot and somehow brings together the two ends of our history, the the kind of uh, the Arabian Oriental history and the modern European history, and that is that in... um, in Algeria, 
in the 19th and 20th centuries when the French colonised Algeria, there was um, a thriving Algerian coffee culture, which is very like the Oriental culture, men drinking in the afternoon, chatting along tonight, drinking that kind of coffee. The French brought coffee with them as a colonising force and they couldn't really understand, they, they rather looked down on this local coffee culture they thought that these people were as Markman was talking about the gossip and the idleness they're wasting their time sitting around gossiping whereas the French are drinking their kind of coffee at the right times of the day first thing in the morning and after dinner were able to be fit alert intelligent and efficient whereas these natives were drinking coffee in a way which rendered them luxurious and idle it's an interesting reflection on that is that actually coffee growing and coffee-growing countries generally, as we said, drink very little coffee. And part of the reason for that is that actually their own governments or their own rulers have prevented them from so doing, not least, for, for example, say Kenya had a rule that you couldn't roast coffee in the country, and that was in place up until the 2000s. What we do see is actually that where coffee is consumed in those economies, it is standard instant-style coffee. So we have the irony that these coffee-growing countries are drinking coffee in ways that are very much the you know the ways that we have developed to actually sort of compress and um, frankly reduce the quality of the, of the coffee and the time that goes into it. What's the given that it was early thought that coffee kept the workers awake to do the real work of that time, which was yeah. prayer. Um, why didn't they think coffee kept workers awake to do the essential work, which is picking coffee beans? Um, that's a, an interesting question. I think that the answer would probably be, A, because of the time that it takes to prepare from scratch, because you'd have to roast your own beans on the site to start doing that. Uh, and also because tea is the usual drink there, and tea, obviously, you know, your leaves are right there, so you can take the tea leaves and create an infusion straight away to do that. Mm-hmm. Coffee is very much an urban drink, and we're beginning to see the growth of coffee in, as it were, non-traditional markets, precisely as they urbanise. So um, including markets like, say, China, Asia, including now markets like Africa South and a little bit like South America. So as we see increased urbanisation, we actually see people leaving the coffee fields, going into the cities and taking up the coffee habit. What about Italy? We missed out Italy. Well, I'm going to I'm going to claim Italy because that really is my thing. <laughs> You're going to claim Italy. I'm going to claim Italy. What would you like to know about Italy? Everything Evan? you have in mind. Well, a bit briefly, succinctly, but pointedly, briefly and witty. Fine. fine. Okay. Well, Italy is uh, has obviously is very proud of its coffee culture. Uh, really, that coffee culture, although if we said Italy is the entry point for coffee into Europe, it really becomes developed with the distinctiveness of espresso. Espresso is a way of it of basically preparing coffee, and the essence of it is using pressure to speed up the time of extraction. At the beginning of the century, you see these first wonderful, big, huge, vertical coffee machines with big steam boilers uh, making things that they call espresso because they're making coffee expressly for each individual customer. They're making it by expressing, using a certain amount of steam pressure, the water through the coffee, and they're making it much quicker, though for that period it's about 40 seconds. When we start thinking about espresso, is really with... Um, the revolution that comes immediately after the Second World War with Gadja, Akili Gadja, who produced the lever machine, which actually is kind of a spring-coiled machine, and consequently using that piston is able to push 
water through at much higher temp- at much higher pressures, about sort of nine to twelve bars. Once that's standardised with the application of electricity and so forth, and Italy at that time again is urbanising very rapidly and also generating electricity, we have the development of the Italian coffee bar. Fast coffee, short, short shots delivered quickly. And we also have the Italian coffee culture, standing up, drinking the coffee, going in, going out very quickly. Part of that is because the Italians had a, a law that enabled them to put a maximum price on coffee but it was a cup of coffee served without service, if that makes sense. So it had to be a cup of coffee just passed across the bar. And as a result, that coffee price is kept very low. Everyone takes their coffee standing up. One of the reasons why only now do we have, in the last couple of years, Starbucks opening in Italy is because there was no market for that, because basically the prices would have been far too high to generate any real demand amongst the Italian people. Um, this and this, this is, is why this is the, this is the Italian seminar we're going yeah. to. This is the Italian yeah, no, seminar. So Britain had become a tea drinking nation by the by the eighteen twenties, um, and most of the you know, the British Empire was tea drinking through the nineteenth and twentieth century. And it's through it's through post war the Italian coffee making method, but also the idea of the Italian cafe that coffee recolonizes. Uh, Britain and and Australia and New Zealand, for example. So those. So now we have in, in Britain, uh, more, you know, many many more coffee shops than we do tea shops. And people go out for coffee. They might drink tea, but they go out for coffee. Um, and and so you know, the coffee has come back in Britain on the back of this the Italian invention of, of re. re reinventing the, the sociable space of, of drinking coffee. But there's another aspect to the Italian coffee culture, which I think of as a kind of fascistic, um, which has fascistic elements to it, and that's the introduction of the mocha stovetop coffee machine, um, which became very popular in the 1930s, was, was favoured by fascism, and partly because the the machines, these, you know, these devices which you screw the two halves together, you put it on your stove, they're made of aluminium, which is this modernist, efficient uh, metal, but also it was drunk in the home. You're bringing modernity into the domestic space. And it's a wonderful combination. You, some of the, the big espresso machines were modelled on steam engines. This little stovetop machine takes this inspiration from a washing machine. So it's kind of domestic um, and it's machine made. It's external and it's internal all at the same time. It's it's definitely true that uh, the Bialetti is, is created in the 30s and the reason, as you say, the use of aluminium is very important there is it's a sort of an austerity metal, really. But the same austerity means that actually the fascists don't really approve of coffee. Coffee imports kind of decline during the whole of fascism because they regard it exactly as what uh, Martin was saying. It's, you know, it's a drink that is a luxury because it's imported. So as early as 1926, espresso machines, the installation of espresso machines is temporarily outlawed in fascist Italy in order to stop people drinking luxurious coffee. So the real takeoff of of, of that machine is really in the 50s, the Bialetti, that's when it kind of spreads across the whole household. I think the the other, just to go back to, to Martin's point about the sort of the spread of you know, Italian-style coffee houses, is also that, of course... Those are all based on those milkified drinks, mm. yeah. Um, so that we have that kind of again a sort of a, a weird thing whereby Italy drinks eighty percent sort of black coffee and we drink ninety percent white coffee, but it's Italian style coffee. Um, 
but there are all those connotations again of class and to some extent gender so the class one you know the whole notion of the latte liberal is a huge a huge thing in the sort of the spread of the chain if you look at the spread of starbucks and mapped it against states that are red states and states that are blue states everything will be blue states for the first sort of 20 years and it's only much later that it really begins to penetrate into those kind of american heartland type states and the same discourse you would still find today you know in the british press if you want a quick a quick uh, designation for you know guardian reading liberal it will be latte sipping well you know sat over there cappuccino we know what's actually implied when we hear that. Can it you do all the newspapers not, like that? I, I could have a go for you. <laughs> yeah. But I um, think but, there's something rather infantilising about this spread of, of, of latte more than any other drink. You know, the, the quantity of milk in that cup, the way in which people are drinking these you know, disposable cups, these sort of sucky cups, they look like baby cups, and they're walking slowly down the street, sucking on their milky drinks. I think it's 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 very different from standing at the bar mm. and having your shot of, of manly espresso and then rushing off to do some important business. And, and the milk is largely unexamined. I mean, only very recently have people started worrying about whether or not the milk's organic and where it's yeah. sourced from. Whether I mean, it's soy milk. Yeah, or, or whether yeah. Yeah, or soy. So there's huge quantities of milk which are uh, being consumed, and, and there's usually mm. in coffee coffee houses very little um, talk of the milk. I mean, it's all about the romance of coffee, even yeah. though the coffee mm. is a vanishingly mm. small mm. Uh, percentage mm. of the actual when, drink. Mm. Where did the cognac go in your top one? I, for a while, uh, when I was uh, 17 and a half, worked in Paris with the Abbe Pierre, and we went round in the morning. Uh, collecting stuff from the back of big houses and such on these great lorries and the guys stopped and you nipped into a bar and they had and they had coffee and cognac mm. it was it, it, it was it, a very it, startling way yeah. for a northern lad to start the day <laughs> <laughs> surprising how soon they were used to <laughs> it was partly that the french uh, cafe culture is rather different partly because of the licensing laws so when cafes were first opened in paris i think i'm right about this that they were op- the, the vintners had uh, a greater dominance in the area and so the coffee was only sold in licensed premises so coffee was always sold alongside alcohol now 18th century british coffee houses sometimes served alcohol but they weren't primarily uh, wine bars restaurants uh, taverns and inns they were designated coffee shops i mean i think this is the the big thing is that the, the continental cafe starts from that sort of guild restriction or rather the way that the, the coffee is assigned to a guild and it's signed to the assigned to the distillers guild and they are given the license to serve distills at table i think uh, your your taste is about to be tested as the producer comes in <laughs> Simon, just curious do you, want, do you want tea or is it all coffee <laughs> coffee coffee I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to try your coffee. Yeah. <laughs> BBC yeah. coffee. It's yeah. not. Yeah. I'll try it. I'll it's try it. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's another category entirely. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Henry Akeley disappeared from his home on the edge of Rendlesham Forest somewhere around the end of June 2019. They come every night now. The police don't believe me. Please, I just need you to get in touch. What we uncovered is a mystery that has sent us deep into England's past, to an area steeped in witchcraft, the occult, secret government operations. Now we have multiple sites of five lights with a similar shape Robert. And something that might indeed be altogether otherworldly. <laughs> 
This is The Whisperer in Darkness. Available now on BBC Sounds. Want more from your podcast app? Graduate to Pocket Casts, your free one-stop shop for podcast listening, search, and discovery. The beautifully designed app gives you more control and makes it easier to discover and organize podcasts with powerful tools to customize listening. Hear all your favorite shows at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores. 